Gresham College Presents Governance, the Board by Daniel Hodson, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. My general topic is governance. Of course, much heat and light has been expended on the subject at every level and in a multiplicity of forums. Three major committees have opined over the last few years. Cadbury, Greenbury and Hampton. My approach is to deal with issues of very significant importance which may not be specifically covered by the codes which have emerged from the formal committees and to set out a number of propositions for further discussion. To make this more stimulating and to provide a broader perspective, I've asked a number of business friends to join me in the debate. And this evening I'm delighted to be able to welcome two very distinguished people, Brandon Goff and Peter Morgan. I first met Brandon in the late 80s when he was, if I may say so, an impressively young chairman of Coopers and Nygrand. I'm not saying that's an impressively young. In 1994, uh, he set forth into the world of pluralism, as it seems to be called, and has had a number of board roles since then, which make him eminently well qualified to join in the debate tonight. Most topically, perhaps, he has been a director of National Power since last year, has had a key role in a major review of strategy there, leading to the resignation of the chief executive and the recent splitting of the company into two parts. He was deputy chairman of Warburg's following the abortive merger with Morgan Stanley and during the subsequent split and disposition of the bank. And he took over the helm at Yorkshire Waters executive chairman, dealt with the issues that then confronted the company, appointed a CEO and reverted to non-executive status. If that wasn't enough for one lifetime, He's been chairman of the Higher Education Funding Council of England and is currently chairman of Della Rue. Peter is a much more recent acquaintance. Both has been appointed as consultants, perhaps even shadow directors, the board of a private company, which well, I think we modestly can say that we did some good. But I, for one, won't be drawn any further. Perhaps you will, Peter. Uh, he spent much of his career at very senior levels in IBM and was headhunted to become director general of the Institute of Directors in 1989 a job which made him a national figure if he wasn't already. Plural since then, too, he's chaired a number of companies, including SWLA's Swalek, Pace Microtechnology, NPI, Natural Problem Institution, and KSCL, from which experience he will no doubt have a tale or two. He's currently in Australia, chairman of Baltimore Technologies and a director of Oxford Instruments. And both my guests have one interesting thing in common. Peter is currently, and Brandon has been, a member of that fascinating instrument of corporate governance, the Council of Lawyers, of which no doubt more are not. I should now set the scene for a few moments, uh, to be followed by some comments from my friends on each, and then interspersed, I hope, with thoughts from those of you in the hall itself. The focus this evening is on the board, and on the way which conducts its business. In this case, I refer principally to PLC and cooperative and the boards of private companies have deliberately chosen to model themselves on PLC governance. I have no, no doubt, however, that there will be a significant read across to other forms of board, such as school governors and trustees of charities. I well remember joining my first board over 25 years ago and being greeted cheerfully by the chairman with the immortal words, congratulations and welcome to the thankless task that lies ahead. Fortunately, I've had more than several opportunities since to ruminate on how right he was. Given the time available, I'd like to concentrate the debate on a limited number of propositions. I must say at the outset that these do not necessarily represent my own point of view, but are put forward to 
stimulate argument. First, boards should concentrate almost exclusively on strategic matters and making sure that the right people are in place to carry out their decisions. Second, boards should regularly review their own performance and their members, including the chairman. The performance of non-executive directors, NEDs, should be appraised just like any other member of management. Third, the board should regularly review its own governance procedures and stick to the ground rule that it sets itself. Fourth, the board should never exceed 12 in number, with balanced numbers of non-execs and executives, an optimum being around eight. NEDs, non-executive directors, should bring specific and useful skills to the table. Fifth, boards should continuously review the nature and quality of information they receive to ensure that it is appropriate for the discharge of their function. And sixth, the overriding duty of the board, apart from statutory requirements, is to look after the interests of the shareholders. Benefiting stakeholders supports this objective, but is not sovereign in its own right. A good place to start, and one which may not prove too controversial, is the fundamental role of the board in relation to the affairs of the company. My proposition is that the board is principally acting, always within the law, on, a, on the account of shareholders. I shall, I shall return to the theme of stakeholders later. But its two other main accountabilities should be from the strategy and strategic decision-making of the organisation, and to ensure that the correct structure and senior personnel are in place to see the strategy through and to manage the day-to-day -day requirements of the business. I leave aside, of course, the statutory requirements of boards, for instance, approval of accounts and receiving reports of mandatory subcommittees. It is my view that many boards fail in effective discharge of their duties by concentrating too much on microeconomic operational supervision. The life of the National Financial Futures and Options Exchange, the life board, which I was a member for nearly six years, was a classic example of this. We had several entertaining but essentially time-wasting discussions about the price of sandwiches in the exchange canteen. <laughs> and most of the precious time available was spent discussing operational matters, many not much more exalted than sandwiches. As an aside, it is my view that any board meeting which lasts more than three hours is well into extra time, given the powers of concentration and intellectual stamina of most human beings. Nor, in my experience, was life in any way unique. Whilst boards have a duty to hold management responsible for the stewardship of the business, their bulk of their time should be spent on strategic matters. But the temptation in so many places is to avoid the former and to concentrate on the latter. Another associated issue is to make sure that strategic issues are indeed debated and determined on the board. Boards regularly fail in their performance by allowing important strategic decisions to be made by default, by ignoring them, or by letting events unfold as they will, or by such a decision being made down the line by management without reference to the board at all. It's increasingly best practice for boards to spend one or two days a year off-site to set the strategic framework and strategic priorities of the business. Such a framework should be flexible according to need, but should represent the point of reference for all strategic board decisions. Indeed, too many boards make strategy on the run and respond to opportunities without applying the simple test, is this in accordance with our strategy and priorities? I've known a number of chairmen and or chief executives who have given the impression that their existence is justified by a deal a month and that sticking to the litany is a flat ball. <coughs> One chairman found strategic matters so tiring that he couldn't be in the room where they, they were discussed. 
but he did not buy the selling businesses. There is no doubt in this area of unceasing and detailed stock market scrutiny that having a clearly articulated strategy and sticking to it, focus, is a great contributor to shareholder value. And in these days of accountability, boards certainly ought regularly to monitor and critique their performance. In practice, very few do, and certainly few boards with which I have been involved. Now, this can be achieved in two ways. On, a, on an ad hoc basis, all strategic decisions, and indeed capital investment decisions, should be reviewed at least once at appropriate later dates. This process of post-investment review, or PIR, a normal part of good management practice within the organisation, ought just as well to apply to the board. It is a refreshing and often painful but useful exercise for a board openly to discuss and to reach conclusions in on questions in relation to specific topics such as how did we do? What lessons can we learn? Can we do better? Should we change our approach? After all, 360-degree appraisal, as it's called, that is, being appraised by one's subordinates and peers, as well as one's seniors, is now an accepted part of good management practice. And it would be fascinating and probably highly instructive to know what the next tier of managers done thought of the performance of their board. A formal annual review of strategic, board, of strategic board performance would also be important, perhaps as part of the off-site activities referred to. Again, the sort of questions ought to be, did we make the right decisions? What decisions should we have taken that we did not? And perhaps most difficult, are we constructed in the most effective way how was individual performance? I wonder how many boards would actually pass muster. It is a salutary fact that NEDs tend to have greater longevity on the board than their executive colleagues. There may be some sensible reasons for this, of course. Continuity, knowledge, preservation of independence, for instance. But I can think of several situations, to my personal knowledge, where inertia, the Illinois network, even the chairman and or the chief executive self-protection mechanism have led any, an NED to an NED's overlengthy tenure and subsequently less than useful value from that particular board slot. The value and performance of NEDs should also be scrutinised regularly and be a recognised part of the board routine. This might be done by a combination of the chairman and the senior NED, the latter being one of the most useful and relatively mandatory concepts to emerge from the three great committees which I referred to earlier. I have to say that a chairman and or a senior NED never gave me as an NED a critical appraisal or indeed any appraisal at all, although I'm sure that I fully deserved that on numerous occasions. Uh, this process might, of course, on occasion go as far as an invitation to leave the board. <clears throat> the subject of NED qualifications, one board in which I sat, had a couple of nights in advance, and the remaining NEDs were mystified as to why their papers always arrived addressed to them with a similar gong attached. One venture suggests that the PA responsible thought that being a member of that board automatically brought a knighthood <laughs> to a rather humorous response from the two real knights who were rather proud of the external successes that led to their messenger. <laughs> the same rigor of appraisal ought to also to apply to the chairman in logic. And here again, the role of the senior NED takes on a crucial responsibility. In recent years, there have been a number of often well-deserved pushes by NEDs against chairmen. But as often, there are chairmen who regard their positions as job for life, jobs for life, and secure against all comers. <coughs> it is well worth adding that 
that the combination of bad chem and or bad NEDs can so often be the undoing of otherwise able chief executives, who are nearly always made the scapegoats for strategic operational failures, where the truth might have lain with others less visible on the board. Admittedly, there is a school of thought which suggests that chief executives should include board management amongst their required skills. I personally that this is one of the key requirements of the chairman, but not necessarily the chief executive. Rather, the former should thereby cover the latter's back so that he can concentrate on operational matters. Boards of action or, or recently demutualized cooperatives are so often examples of naming the chief executive for, co for corporate setbacks, where the strategy in which the wretched individual was taught was in reality, reality the boards and very much imposed on. The Board of Life used to like to take a clear we're in charge attitude strategy when I was chief executive there, although they were rather good at the more practical business of making, rather less good, more practical business of making their minds. A much more topical example is the defenestration of Gavin Casey at the London Stock Exchange for carrying out a strategy which everyone knew was the brainchild of others and the board and specific individuals on it, simply ordered him to get on with it, which he did, and paid the price while they remained out of sight. Chief executive's life, and indeed corporate death, could be very unfair. One of the more difficult aspects of board governance, particularly as an incoming NED, is to ensure that the appropriate procedures, such as those suggested above, are in place. Other such procedures might be the existence in terms of reference audit committees and remuneration committees. It is all too often the case that those associated with the status quo, the chairman, the chief executive in particular, will see a threat to a cosy existence and or an implied criticism and will dig their heels in. But it is fundamental in my mind that boards should review their governance procedures annually and examine them in the light of best practice, the needs of the business and the interests of the shareholders. One issue they would certainly do well to include on that list is the size of the board. Boards are, in so many respects, very organic creatures and operate best when they're small enough for, for conversation and discussion to be at a normal level and for a team spirit to pervade, and large enough to provide the right balance of input for strategic decision-making. <laughs> there is still a tendency for boards to grow into parliamentary size, usually because of the perceived need for as many constituencies as possible to be represented, cooperatives being a prime example, and because being on the board created a cachet which had no resemblance to we even desire responsibility for that board, as in investment banks and advertising agencies. I have two such jumbo boards in my CV. First, Nationwide Anglia Building Societies it then was, which had swelled to include the directors of both the two constituent societies, Nationwide and Anglia. The management of the NEDs of Anglia proved to be one of the most sensitive aspects of the merger, for the job was one of the rewards for municipal success for the good burgers of Northampton, until the merger not only carried a pension, but also a day in the sovereign for its equivalent. Life was an entirely different matter. It was, of course, cooperative in governance and ethos, with a number of different constituencies ranging from single traders at one extreme to huge international conglomerates at the other, with special interest groups such as equity option and commodity specialists in the middle. And it's then in number 25. Confronted with issues, some fruitling, some of huge importance, it became a fractious and long-winded debating society 
with little sense of teamwork or common purpose. Teamwork or common purpose. Furthermore, it tends to be dominated by a handful of loud, articulated, articulate and opinionated voices. Yet it was so often the silent majority who needed to be heard and often represented the, the more balanced and wiser views. Indeed, on contentious issues, it was nigh on impossible to get a consensus, and there was constant recourse to voting. The impact of this was that divisions usually carried on beyond the vote, not on the street outside, whereas the desirable objective of a board split and debate on any issue is that once the vote has been taken and or the majority view identified, the members will rally round and accept a high degree of corporate responsibility, even if theirs was the minority view. The life board was also nightmare to share. It was indeed the very antithesis of the effective representative decision-making organ a board should strive to be. As an aside, many experienced chairmen made it a rule not to call for a vote. If the consensus cannot be reached, then the matter is shelved or deferred. On that basis, I've served on several boards whose business would have been permanently gridlocked if such a rule had been followed. But what is the maximum effective size of a board? It is very much a matter of judgment. But in my experience, 12 is beginning to stretch the criteria of sensible balanced debate and ability to maintain the sense of team commitment. It is often argued, particularly in a cooperative environment, that the need for board representation calls for higher, broad representation calls for higher numbers. And if there is a limit of, say, a dozen, if there's to be a limit of, say, a dozen, it should be accommodated to expensive executive members. There are two reasons why this is potential folly. First, it cannot achieve executive commitment to the decision-making process, for they will feel naturally excluded. And second, it loses the key input that those who actually live daily with the issues and actually have to implement the decisions can bring. Equally, contrary to some precepts, I believe that boards can be too small. A typical example being just a chairman and chief executive and a couple of NEDs, perhaps with a finance director in turn masquerading as a company secretary. The question is whether such a tight-knit unit can master the breadth of experience and depth of knowledge effectively to make the strategic decisions expected of it. Nor does it bind in other key executives who will feel less committed to the result of decisions. In my mind, the best number is 6 to 10. Team spirit and a feeling of shared experience and responsibility is all important and all too rare to make the board an effective unit. This does not call for constant agreement, but rather reasoned and civilised debate. Nor does it call for members to like each other any more than it does in great sporting teams. Creative tension between individuals can add immeasurably, if properly channeled, to the quality of debate. Certainly the best and most effective boards which I have been a member, for reasons of personal safety, I shall not judge in my present portfolio, but be small, balanced and with more or less equal numbers of executives and NEDs, some of whom did not get on, on at all well outside the board, and of course, well shared. A governance review might also cover board information, a dull topic perhaps, but in my mind key. In discharging its duty, it is essential that the board knows what is going on in the business, not only at a strategic level, but in order to make sure that the executive is fulfilling its operational duties as well as to understand what the crucial issues are facing the business. And perhaps, based on its collective experience, 
to spot them at an early stage in order to control them. All well-run businesses supply boards with appropriate levels of financial information. And as importantly, but by no means all, broaden them into what have become known as key performance indicators, or KPIs. The latter are broadly non-financial and often qualitative measures of performance, historical and forecast. And yet another lecture would deal with only a fraction of this topic. And then, even then, unsurprisingly, that the appropriate KPIs would vary greatly from business to business. Many managers, in my experience, do not enjoy hearing all the information you ought to have and have to have it dragged out if indeed it is readily available at all. Again, the best way around this would be to have an annual appraisal of the quality, quantity, and appropriateness of the information the board receives. Quantity is actually very important because too much resulting over management, or too little resulting in bad decisions, can be equally fatal. I cannot think of a single board with which I've been associated that has taken this approach. Instead, an ad hoc approach is the most common, with the information often being requested after a setback, which could probably have been avoided had the board had the relevant information routinely. Finally, there's long been conventional wisdom that boards should serve the interest of shareholders. But should boards take into account the interests of other stakeholders in, the, in their deliberations? And in each occasion, you regard them as paramount, even above the shareholders themselves. By stakeholders, of course, well, politically correct word, I mean inter alia regulators, employees, customers, suppliers, environmentally concerns, environmental concerns, the local community, etc. Now this is a subject for a lecture of its own right, but I shall short-circuit that by flat assertion. So, the board should take a balanced view of the interests of stakeholders in all their decisions. <coughs> Indeed, it can be powerfully argued that in so doing, they will directly or indirectly benefit the commercial success of the business, and thus the shareholders. Indeed, most board decisions will affect most stakeholders when you boil it down. Paramount always, all on occasion. In the end, it's shareholder value which counts. The considered far sighted and balanced treatment of stakeholders will only serve to enhance that value. Well, that's enough for me. Six weighty topics, much for us to discuss. And just to repeat them again overriding the strategic duties for the board, regular self appraisal. Regular review of governance procedures, size and constitution, appropriate information, and the importance of stakeholders. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.